This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders. Order, order. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we talk about what made news, what didn't and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. This is yours truly, Cherry Agarwal and I'm a Delhi resident who has been super envious with Bombay since last evening and the only question on my head right now is Parish kab aayega yaar? But leaving that aside, let me introduce the panel. Today on the panel we have Ayush Tiwari. Hi. Ooh, Ayush, you're back from Aligarh, right? Yes. It was your second trip there? Yeah, to Aligarh district, not in that, uh, not Aligarh proper. Mm-hmm. But uh, this town is 50 kilometers away from the city. Okay. So Ayush was in Aligarh to get to the bottom of why this city is on the verge of becoming very communal. So Ayush, how different was it from the last time when you were there? So last time I was in Aligarh proper in Aligarh Muslim University and uh, it was a s- small rather controversial skirmish between the students you know of the same university but of different political groups so it wasn't a public uh, affair that way mm-hmm. so there wasn't much to it when I went there it had dissipated but this one was a town a small town uh, beside the Yamuna Expressway and i saw i was in the middle of a mob for a while and did that I, scare I, you it didn't scare me then but looking back at it it always happens you know you think in retrospect you think you were foolish to hmm. be out there but uh, i've heard worse reports from the next day when I, I wasn't there but yeah the things were really bad way worse than february we'll come to your experience in aligarh but uh, also on the panel is tarun cherukuri hi tarun Hi, Chiri. You can say hi to the camera. Hi. Tarun heads an organization called In This Action. In This Action works towards implementation of Section 121C of the Right to Education Act. And I will let Tarun give you some context of what 121C exactly is. Uh, so 121C basically uh, is a mandate with an RTE for children from economically and socially disadvantaged backgrounds uh, to have access to private unaided schools. Uh, it was a very influential kind of legislation with an RTE. Uh, it kind of uh, put the onus on also private schools to be socially responsible hmm. uh, and kind of pave way for more inclusive classrooms. Okay. Yeah. So Tarun is here to talk about the draft national education policy, which has been super controversial. It's been a lot of controversy, especially because it made a recommendation of making Hindi mandatory even in non-Hindi speaking states. There was a lot of backlash and we'll have Tarun weigh in on whether the policy is actually feasible when it is going to be implemented. We'll also be talking about the Akshay Patra controversy and we'll also be talking about the larger trend of people getting arrested because of social media posts. Speaking of which, Gaurav isn't here. He's at the Supreme Court. Uh, Journalist Prashant Kanojia's wife had filed a petition uh, because the journalist was arrested for sharing a tweet which allegedly defamed uh, Uttar Pradesh Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath. Uh, Ajay Singh Bisht, not Yogi Adityanath. Ah, correction. Thank you. Ajay Singh Bisht. Yeah. So that is Yogi Adityanath's original name, which is how he should be called, as Ayush puts it. But let's begin, Ayush. Let's begin with you. You said that it was communal. It was, and when you were thinking about it, a a little bit scary. Knowing that the subject of the matter is a kid who's a two-year-old and not adults uh, facing sedition, like what... Was there something you thought you really have to get right? Yeah, look, it, the, if you just looked at the case as 
things happen that is you go and do your basic work on the ground you go meet the family you go meet the community and you ask them what they think about it then this wasn't at all a case about communal angle of you know two muslim men murdering a two uh, two year old child who happens to be hindu uh, but it's the social media overtones that were inst- uh, introduced in it on the early in i think first two days of june and that's what brought attention to it so are very for most people especially on the internet urban living access to internet the introduction to this case was to the angle of two muslim men killing a hindu girl well of course that wasn't the case when i went there i talked to the family i talked to the people none of them believe that it is a communal case it's a, obviously a very dastardly act of murder um, if you've read the postmortem details and you can read that on the internet they i mean even speaking of uh, trying thinking of speaking of those you know gives you goose pimples but uh, what happened was i was there i was talking to people i was meeting the father this murder took place allegedly because of an uh, a monetary dispute between the person who murdered him and his and the ch- uh, child's grandfather and as I, i had met them and i had done all the basic work and i was going out and there's this large veranda in that village in this town called tappal and there all the journalists and the policemen were you know taking rest this 46 degree heat and we were there and i was going to talk to the village pradhan and he was talking to a correspondent and this guy in the corner just raises his phone and this facebook live going on and in that facebook live there is mob of 200 300 men just going berserk 200 300 men yes. that's quite a number and they were just going berserk and i thought wow where is this i thought it's some other part of india where all these protests are happening and just a minute later you know all this ground shakes a little <laughs> and there's this clamor of a crowd coming and within seconds this whole mob came they had an effigy made out of dirty cloth and they were beating and smashing it and, and whose effigy was that it was of the zahid the man who killed the girl and it got so, so vicious at one point that as this mob was going around in the lanes especially when it reached the areas where they had muslim people living the slogans changed from zahid ko fasi ho to suar ko fasi ho and suar being a slur and people saying you know using words like katwa and all so it got really unpleasant and i documented these people and asked them you know this is i talked to the family this is not communal matter so what aap yahan pe sampradayik bhavnaye bhadkane aaye to they were like hum bhadkane nahi aaye lekin agar us pe baat aati hai uske liye bhi hum taiyar hain and even But more vicious than that who are these people the, these were the villagers No they were not the people of that town they were brought in from outside who brought them in we don't know that i asked them are you have any association with the party or this or that they said no we are simply a student association from a nearby coaching institute i thought can okay, all of them gave me the same answer so they might have been tutored mm. but there were also people who like one of this one guy called uh, his surname is singh i won't take his name but he said i'm a bjp worker and i said you know what do you want he said i live 25 kilometers from here in our village we have 10 cars ready and at one signal they'll come in here tomorrow and we just need a leader to lead the mob and we can't find one but when, once they come here we they leader get killed or they'll kill and the police won't be able to do anything that's really scary and exactly that that thing happened but fortunately the police was warned knew about this so they had blocked the access to town the next day so any or one of the scorpios you know coming in they were not allowed to come they literally dragged these people out of the town so the up police did actually fantastic work but it just goes on to show that 
certain irresponsibilities or rather irresponsibilities deliberate acts can really introduce a malevolent angle in places where they do not belong and it's highly i think you should be putting nsc on people who uh, do these things on social media because they are the ones as i saw on the ground causing national security problems and you know introducing enmity between communities and not people like the journalist who just shared a post on adjusting best so that's my view i am a free speech absolutist so i wouldn't say impose oh, nsc yes are you now um, only two episodes okay. ago you were advocating people not be allowed on air and like, no. give bile views media giving coverage is different from people being able to express themselves okay. that is different Fine. but if you saying impose nsa on these people i don't think that is the right way to go but i do want to bring tarun in tarun you work with kids and hearing about the episode i mean how do you deal with a situation where tiny toddler two year old kid is involved um so you mean at a school level at a school level if you hear about such an incident and also i mean when as a professional who's working with kids right. what do you think of the media's coverage so i think like uh, media definitely has a responsibility of care to uh, kind of share information from a factual point of view um so that i think it's uh, the duty to also inform society of uh, what's dark and and what's the reality but at the same time the responsibility of care is to present it in a way uh, uh, which uh, is discerning and which is factful mm-hmm. uh, and which can be internalized by uh, kind of children and youth as well so i think on uh, on that regard uh, obviously like in this particular case uh, for teachers and kind of school educators i think the responsibility is to translate the information Uh, in a way which kind of is able to kind of promote reflection right so uh, and just stepping back a little bit if you look at kind of the work uh, that has been done kind of post holocaust uh, or kind of the nazi regime right a lot of work has gone into uh, kind of museums uh, and uh, kind of um, literature around holocaust uh, and uh, the concentration camps the effort is to ensure that like such a thing doesn't happen again right so mm-hmm. i think like every event uh such as this is unfortunate uh, but i think it's also an opportunity to, to for a educator to say like such a thing mm. should not happen again so how do we uh, invoke kind of the sense of empathy uh, reflection and kind of community um kind of using the event as a trigger um but tarun i also wanted to, you to weigh in on what ayush was saying so if someone is putting out very communal messages do you think they should uh, the nsa should be imposed on them or should there should be a case of nsa registered against them i think like what is news and who needs to regulate news is obviously a topic we're figuring out as a society so i don't know if i have bright ideas then uh, say facebook or google uh, or the nsa uh, but i think like we have to kind of figure out how we regulate information in in this kind of post truth and uh kind of um, in many ways kind of post news era mm-hmm. uh, where uh, i mean in most of the world like half of the news has been consumed uh, through social media right so yeah i mean just to just to clarify either i wasn't clear enough mm-hmm. which i think it that was the case or you misinterpreted me but i meant nsa against people who were pouring into the town and making okay. this a communal issue i don't advocate nsa for people tweeting okay <laughs> that that should be clear uh so in aligarh when you were there you spoke to the girl's family right i also wanted to ask about there would be other media professionals who were there what do you i mean in a moment of grief do you think it is right for media professionals to just get there i understand how important it is to report on it but 
speaking to the family not giving them the space to grieve what are your thoughts on that well look the tra- trajectory of the case was such that for 5 6 days people didn't cover it i remember when i was going to on my way to aligarh and i was googling i couldn't find even one ground report yeah. so it's all that almost as if all of a sudden media houses realized that there is no ground report and everyone sent <laughs> everyone to do a ground report so from a flat you just went to a spike mm-hmm. and छः सात लोग वहाँ पे आ गए एंड एवरी वन वॉन्ट्स टू टॉक टू द फैमिली एंड यू नो दे हैव टू रिकाउंट द थिंग्स अगेन एंड अगेन विच द फादर ऑफ द गर्ल वॉज डूइंग आई थिंक राधर यू नो यू हैड सेम स्ट्रेंज स्टॉइसिज अबाउट इट यू वॉज जस्ट गोइंग एंड टॉकिंग अबाउट नै थॉट हाउ वुड दैट बी एंड द मदर वॉज ऑल्सो गोइंग टू टॉक रेडी टू टॉक टू एवरी वन सो एज अ जर्नलिस्ट आई फेल्ट राधर गिल्टी अबाउट मेकिंग दैम यू नो रोल ओवर द सेम सीक्वेंस ऑफ इवेंट्स अगेन एंड अगेन बट दैन that's the thing it, it every media house is out there to get their own you know piece whatever unique thing mm-hmm. they they can get and i did get one myself so who am i to say but the way it was also working you could see the rivalries when i arrived there there was a police uh, personnel who was uh, how many police personnel were deployed outside that house i saw four okay and uh, so one of the journalists walked up to this uh, police person and he's like ye dusre channel ke journalist aaye hain kya abhi to aisa nahi kehta okay fine so that rivalry was showing there but i think more or less people were generally sensitive mm-hmm. no one was i remember if you remember uh, when someone in delhi i think was grieving over some incident i can't recall what it was and times now was got that person on a debate and there's a video of that republic journalist trying to shove the mic off him and you know to get their own bite obviously none of that happened fortunately so it was a good affair but uh, with that incident happening and it jumping into the media with celebrities tweeting about it i mean it's almost a necessary evil okay moving on from this tarun coming to you and coming to the draft national education policy like what are your broad thoughts why is this necessary this is the third iteration from what i understand right so there have been previous attempts and uh, a policy in 1986 and a uh, national curriculum framework in 2005 uh and then in between a yashpal committee as well and then a tsr subramanian committee in 2014 so there've been four five attempts in the last kind of 20 years to kind of articulate a policy for uh, the current age and times like especially with the advent of technology uh, kind of globally connected world so how do you prepare um, uh, children for kind of a very radical future so this is kind of the fourth or fifth attempt to articulate uh, Uh, a new vision uh, for the education policy so i think one of the things we learn in kind of policy schools is uh, can a policy is not just about being technically sound uh, it's also about uh, how do you find the match between it being administratively feasible uh, which is is it in sync with the current capabilities uh, of the government to actually um, translate the policy into effect and is it politically supportable so is in sync with what the political realities of uh, the current society are um so i think uh, one big picture uh, kind of take away from nep is uh, it's very aspirational it definitely articulates a lot of ambitious uh, recommendations it provides emphasis on early childhood care and education uh, bringing that into the mainstream of education it focuses on um, kind of ensuring foundation learning till grade 5 um it also talks about extending right to education from age 3 to age 18 all of these things are great uh, but i think how that will pan out financially uh, for the central and state governments uh, whether they'll be able to allocate 20% of their budgets which also the 
uh, NEP recommends. So that remains to be seen. I think the report is kind of lacking in rigor in terms of how to translate this administratively. Uh, I think it does a good job of uh, at least kind of stating its ambition. Mm. It's very ambitious uh, and aspirational, uh, but I'm not sure if it's translatable. Uh, okay. Yeah. But what would you say, for example, uh, I remember when I was in college, we had, you know, one internship where I went out and studied the education policies. I can't claim to remember much. But what I remember was that all of them hinted, all the readings I did, that there's a fundamental structural flaw in the way the education system is, you know, organized. So if you were to, from your expertise, if you could draw from that and tell us what would be some fundamental changes that the government needs to push this time so that we really prepare you know future generations for a new century and a new just better way of leading a life which given all these reports one reads from you know educational institution coaching institutions people committing suicide and quota it just depresses me so i mean i just wanted you to just lay out that four or five improvements or any number that you would think are necessary right right so I think in terms of articulation of what education needs to cater to, like UNESCO, uh, there have been a lot of previous articulations. Even NCF borrows on uh, some of this. Uh, NCFP? Uh, uh, National Curriculum Framework also borrows on uh, this kind of thinking. So, for example, there's a UNESCO framework for uh, like what constitutes learning. They talk about four competencies that any education uh, policy needs to deliver, which is like helping children, uh, helping children learn on four aspects of learning. Like how do you learn to know? How do you acquire knowledge in this world? Uh, learning to do, like how do you kind of work in teams, uh, kind of be ready to uh, work in a complex and interconnected world? Learning to live together, how do you live amidst kind of fault lines, social, economic, uh, religious, etc. And the last is learning to be. Uh, hmm. So how do you kind of find meaning and purpose, etc. Uh, I so can I think, say, sorry yeah. to button, I can say 12 years of education in 12 years of schooling did not tell about this. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is I think uh, on paper, we've been able to articulate what is required uh, from our education system. Uh, I think the unfortunate thing has been that we haven't translated that aspiration into uh, kind of the mechanics of education ministry, women and child development ministry, health ministry, social welfare. Mm -hmm. So I think somewhere it's lost in translation between the aspiration of policy and it's the national curriculum framework. My fear is that NEP kind of uh, is uh, in a similar uh, kind of dilemma. While it's great that it intends to shift the education system uh, to your question, I think like it's a great shift to say, let's have a five plus, three plus, three plus, four. Uh, so that's a good shift. Uh, You'll have to break that down for our listeners. What yeah. do you mean by 5 plus 3 plus 3 yeah. plus 4? So the NEP argues for uh, kind of uh, changing the uh, educational system from the conventional like 10 plus 2, uh, which we've had, uh, to kind of five foundational years, uh, which is kindergarten all the way up to grade 5. Uh, and uh, then three uh, years of, um, sorry, K to 3 uh, and 3 to 5 uh, being the middle school. Uh, and then 6 to 8 uh, being the next 3, uh, and then 9 to uh, all the way till 12th uh, being the 4 years of uh, senior secondary education. Um, the attempt here is to uh, really focus on uh, different stages, mm -hmm. uh, and all stages uh, in which like children are able to have a holistic sense of learning. Uh, so once again, great on paper, uh, it will require a lot of um, uh, moving around of ministries and integration of plans, 
between the women and child development ministry and health ministry which the focuses the women and child development ministry currently looks over or supervises the anganwadi system anganwadi right. system which uh, kind of take care of children in the age group of 3 to 6 hmm. so everything from their midday meals to their education is right now in charge of uh, women and child development ministry ayush tarun was mentioning the four rather the five hmm. you know the things that education and learning is supposed to be delivered i didn't get that in school what about you Look, the the knowing and the inquiry bit was there in my school. I mean, I was I can say that proudly till at least the tenth grade. There was an inquiry based learning system in yeah, place in I, your school. Yeah, I, I was actually a very curious kid till tenth grade, and then my teachers mm-hmm. had a big role to play. So this is about okay. my school, obviously, but it was wrecked and wrecked very badly when that. 10 plus 2 jerk comes you know when mm-hmm. you go to the 11th grade and you think you know you've finally been pushed into a tunnel and you don't know what to do so I think I've always seen that from personal experience as one structural flaw where you're just uh, it, your life just changes you know mm-hmm. it's like going from peacetime to wartime <laughs> and not knowing where the hell you have been dropped so uh, that was there but the I think the most beautiful of all those things you said was the last one that is to be and uh, to find a purpose and uh, that really hits upon a very you know very nice philosophical point that of a human inquiry of to how to be and how to do but of course those things as he said are very good on paper mm. I don't think schools in, in them themselves can make sure that you 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 know person knows how to be mm. I think in India at least what they can do is to let people be that they have to recede from a certain space rather than intervene and make sure Mm. that uh, a person realizes what Mm. they're all about. I mean, it's very easy for us to sit and say that, you know, schools don't let people be. But let me break it down and bring it to the classroom level, right? Mm. Tarun, you were a teacher in a classroom for two years. Is it possible to let children be, like 30 children or let's say 30 is very aspirational, 50 children stuffed in a classroom and you have let's say, a hundred objectives to finish over a course of a year. So, is it possible to just let children be? Uh, not in the current framework. And mm-hmm. and I think, uh, like, NEP takes a shot at saying, hey, I think we need to kind of, uh, like, reduce the ambition of a curriculum and focus on kind of uh, hmm. core aspects. Like, are we really catering to social-emotional learning of children? Uh, are we having ethical and moral reasoning? So, I think those are all valid objectives. So, I think if we can uh, kind of uh, take a relook at uh, kind of the scale of our curriculum uh, and uh, also the other big kind of default uh, or kind of fault line in the current system has been that we focus too much on kind of marks and outcomes mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not paying enough attention to actually foundational learning. Uh, so a lot of kids are not able to read uh, and uh, comprehend and do basic math uh, by the time they're grade five. So obviously you're set up for failure for your secondary grade, which is where the lot of dropout happens. Hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, then of course in, in 11th and 12th, like the market forces really take over the education system. Uh, so I think there is an Ayush opportunity. Is nodding. No, no, I can nod as well. Like I, I was part of a conveyor belt system to crack the IDJE. So uh, I very much got tarnished by that experience. Same. Uh, <laughs> Same. We're all products of that conveyor belt system, I guess. Uh, but no, I think there's an opportunity, uh, at least in the first um, 
um, kind of 10 years mm-hmm. uh, right from kindergarten say maybe at least till 8th grade mm-hmm. uh, i think schooling systems have an opportunity to let children be uh, to fully explore themselves express themselves of course 9th to 10th you kind of then mainstream uh, mm-hmm. a little bit into a vocation mm-hmm. and you have to get a little bit more specialized about like what subjects mm-hmm. you care about uh, but there as well i think if you link that to higher education and and give uh, young people an opportunity to explore Uh, like in kind of foreign universities right mm. you can go all the way till your third year in undergrad and still mm. be exploring mm. about what really kind of uh, drives your inquiry in this world so i think like giving children at least the the runway for uh, i think the first 20 years is really important uh, and not letting kind of market forces drive their choice which is unfortunately been for a mm. lot of us mm. like uh, uh, coming from where i come from like you only had two tracks after 10 mm. like it's engineering or medicine I mean liberal arts is something I heard after I became 21. Oh, so, he has a liberal arts background, Ayush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> nice advertising. <laughs> But yeah, I mean and and uh, believe me it's it was an eye opener after the conveyor belt experience for 2 years in school and then getting going to a liberal arts college for 4 mm-hmm. years and that really shook me. I mean there was a two shocks one was negative and this was the better one. And I think what wh- you did you hear about it? I actually uh, was applying for uh, because I wanted to be a journalist in 12th grade. You were clear back then. Yeah, so I wanted, wanted to, to apply to one this university's journalism school and I did and I noticed they have a liberal arts college and I thought hmm that's interesting so I checked that out. So I applied for those two colleges in that university. I didn't get into the media <laughs> one. I got into the liberal arts one. So that's yeah. how it went. But my point is that uh, I think uh, you can cannot also extricate to a point the system out of the historical and economic system that the country follows so for example example all the stress on engineering and science is one of the relics of that nehruvian era when you were into state planning and building uh, dams and industrializing and you needed a you know an army of engineers but um, it will be important to see and i i don't know but i probably you can re- recommend a study on on this on how that system has changed and whether the education system has evolved with that or, w- or probably it hasn't but i want to just add to that and also sort of pivot back to the national education policy which will now be formalizing education from age 3 yeah age 3 right. i mean the person the kid barely is learning to walk and talk yeah how no, do you fair to them they focus on uh, foundational play and uh, kind of social emotional learning i don't know how that will get translated in an anganwadi or in a preschool mm-hmm. uh, but at least like what they're articulating what needs to be done between 3 to 8 is promising like okay. lots of play a lot of outdoor activity and mm-hmm. and kind of social emotional learning yeah so if we talk about criticism of the national draft draft national education policy what are the things you would recommend that they change right so i personally feel like the uh, the controversy around the three language policy was unwarranted because if you read the fine print uh, it, it does kind of tap into some of the understanding we have of sequence of mother language instruction mm-hmm. so we now know from research that it's really important to gain uh, like functional literacy uh, and kind of writing abilities in your mother tongue which kind of actually improves your access to other mm-hmm. language acquisitions Uh, at a speaking and listening level in the first 6 to 8 years you can acquire a number of languages but it comes to foundational literacy which is reading reading comprehension writing uh, you tend to acquire that faster in your mother language hmm. so i think like they've articulated uh, that policy to be consistent with previous articulations 
So where it comes to like, okay, what is the third language that southern states should pick up? What is the third language that northern states should pick up? Um, so I think the fine print was, uh, I think, uh, fairly open and liberal in the sense that the states had an option to choose. Uh, and I think the amended draft is much more clear right now. Hmm. Uh, so I think it was an unwarranted controversy, in my opinion. Um, but, but they didn't give them an option of not choosing Hindi and choosing another third language. Right. If that was if that was the case, this is my understanding. Yeah. I haven't read the fr- fine print of the national draft education policy. But if I was, let's say, given an option and if I was from a southern state to study, let's say, French, not one of the vernacular languages, then I don't think the controversy would have come to what it came to. That's true. I think like it's how kind of the fine print was uh, kind of interpreted. So it could hmm. be interpreted either ways. Like okay. if you read kind of the sentence uh, for uh, say somebody from southern states, it could equally be interpreted that like, okay, my choice was being kind of restricted. Hmm. Uh, but if I kind of read it from a distance, uh, it felt that there was enough choice for say the education department hmm. uh, to interpret it more liberally. Okay. Uh, so anyways, the amended one is pretty clear right now. Yeah, it leaves no room for further controversy. Yeah, I think the political background also, you know, accelerated the whole controversy because there's a historical fault line when it comes to that hmm. tension between Tamil and Southern languages and Hindi. And with an openly Hindu nationalist government in power that, you know, that that comes across as even worse. So even if the education minister came out and defended himself, I have that modicum of sympathy with him that probably he wasn't, he was uh, not out and out trying to impose it on the southern Mm. states, but the southern states were quick to jump on it and perhaps even misinterpret it to a degree. But was that politics? Was that history? I wouldn't say jump on it and, you know, misinterpret it. I mean, if someone is imposing something and it is not, and you haven't been, you know, asked to give your opinion, but it's going to affect you, then I think it is only right for them to voice what they think. Yeah, they voice what they think, but I I'm, I had in mind leaders like M.K. Stalin, hmm. who uh, two, three days after this draft controversy subsided, hmm. he said, you know, Tamil should be made compulsory in all hmm. uh, government offices. And yesterday he said that it's not, Hindi is not enough blood, etc. That is actually taking it an extra mile. Hmm. There actually are Tamilians who are good at uh, Hindi. I know people in this newsroom who are like this. Hmm. So, uh, um, that tries, tries to give an impression that, you know, away from a ground reality, which I don't appreciate. No, but I mean, the only thing I wanted to say that giving people the choice and not imposing it. But uh, Tarun, coming to you, uh, we are talking about taking the Anganwadi system from the Ministry of Women and Child Development and it would, uh, the recommendation suggests that it would go to the MHRD. We're talking about huge, large-scale structural reforms. Has there, given that uh, your organization works on the ground, have you seen any pre-work or let's say preparation of the ground for something like this to be implemented? Right. So I think part of it is uh, kind of viable and achievable Mm. because the Ministry of Health, for example, oversees the ICDS implementation, Mm. which is the immunization uh, and uh, kind of access to early care uh, through the Anganwadi system. Mm. Uh, So there's some precedent of like the health ministry working closely in conjunction with the Women and Child Development Ministry to achieve kind of shared goals. Um, I think the difference there is like uh, the early childhood care goals are very specific, like how many kids did you vaccinate, uh, how many, uh, how much outreach happened to the Anganwadi worker. So I think uh, the challenge here is in kind of MHRD overseeing the early childhood education activities mm-hmm. uh, in Anganwadi's through 
the uh, WCD ministry would be, I think, the educational outcomes or outputs hmm. uh, are a little bit more uh, hard to kind of measure. Hmm. Uh, so whether it's kind of how many lessons the Anganwadi hmm. worker has executed, how much that translates into uh, hmm. school readiness or hmm. uh, childhood outcomes. So those are more difficult. Uh, and hence it becomes complicated at a systems mm. level for the merger to be seamless. And so that's my worry that there's not enough articulation of how that would happen, though there are timelines on when it would happen and how can if it would be a phased wise one. Mm. Uh, I have my own doubts on how it would work out actually administratively. But from a conversation yesterday, you had mentioned that it would it would be a better approach given that then they would have similar data sets yeah. and it would be a more focused approach. Yeah. So I just want to quickly add on that point, which I forgot to mention, because uh, right now I think uh, four different ministries have uh, data systems uh, with respect to tracking students in early stages. Hmm. So you have the health ministry tracking children from a immunization and infant mortality point of view. Uh, you have Anganwadi's uh, tracking children from a midday meal and early childhood nutrition point of view. Uh, you have Ministry of Social Welfare uh, trying to track children from a disadvantaged uh, entitlements and access point of view. And then you have MHRD trying to track children from an out-of-school and school enrollment point of view. Uh, it's unfortunate that we've invested in like four parallel systems to track the same child. Uh, and so there's a huge opportunity through this exercise actually to have a merger, at least in data systems to start with. And then, of course, kind of uh, shared goals and shared objectives. And saving on resources that Absolutely. we are investing so yeah. much in. Uh, Ayush, given that you've been covering the media, what do you think of media's coverage of education, the sector itself? I don't think uh, I have come across a lot of analysis of this draft uh, education bill that came out. And uh, that falls in line exactly with the attitude not only towards education of the Indian media, but also towards the topics like healthcare. Mm -hmm. I remember Amartya Sen and uh, Jean Dreyes brought up this book called An Uncertain Glory, India and Its Contradictions, and they had a chapter on uh, healthcare and education. And in both, they demonstrated how much space mm -hmm. uh, was given to columns on education and health mm -hmm. uh, in newspapers. And it was something like 4-5%. Uh, mm -hmm. Healthcare was even worse. So, it's not... And so, f the very fundamental problem is that it's not given enough space. And I think when the space are given I'm not sure if the kind of people who uh, have voices or enjoy voices in these columns um, are taken up by the government. It's not really the fault of the media, but I think the government, when it comes to listening, is at fault at times, that it does not take certain inputs. And especially when it's an ideological government, uh, then I have even more doubts. I don't think I would agree with you when you say media is not at fault. I mean... In the that particular case, it's not at fault. When it comes to coverage, I said that that's the fault and that's okay. fundamental. But mm -hmm. when it comes to listening, that's the government's problem. Mm. I so, moving on from this topic, Ayush, apart from the draft national education policy, what do you think has been underreported over the last week? I think these rather arbitrary arrests of people who've been expressing um, critical views on certain subjects. Mm. And there's a thought police in form of political workers who are out mm. and they report these people and these people get arrested. Now... I am pretty sure that the government is not planning this from the top. This is not happening from the PM or Home Ministry, mm -hmm. as some people would like to say on the left. But it's simply the fact that this government has empowered workers and that changed the dynamic between a political worker and the local SHO of a mm -hmm. police station. So much so that if five workers come out and said this person just put out an incendiary post on my religion or this or mm -hmm. that, and they go to the 
SHO and the SHO will go and arrest them. Hmm. For example, in Kanoja's case, he's a journalist. Uh, the police showed up wearing uh, civilian clothes and they didn't have a warrant. That's not an arrest. It's a kidnapping. Hmm. You know, you, you can't be doing that, something like that. But the two cases I had in mind was this one report from the 2nd of June in the Indian Express is on the front page. Mm-hmm. Despite being on the front page, I didn't see a follow-up strangely later on. This one professor and he's a scheduled cast uh, person which makes it more relevant in Madhip, in one town in Gwalior uh, expressed some you know he was critical said derogatory things about mother's goddess Saraswati now the copy doesn't say what's the derogatory thing so I don't know what it is but the point of it was that he said derogatory thing and he said therefore I don't put Saraswati goddess ka frame on the department and I prefer Gandhi and Ambedkar mm-hmm. and he was arrested for that because some local you know political workers not just the BJP cutting across political lines mm-hmm. everyone wanted to get him arrested from May 19 there was another report of this uh, doctor who was active on Facebook and he said you know Brahmanvad is a bad thing and he mm-hmm. got arrested I mean Brahmanvad is a bad thing you get arrested for that Imagine if Ambedkar would have been alive today and said something like this and he said things that are way more shriller than that. So would he have been arrested? So I don't understand why these this wave of arbitrary police in, use of instrumental power is just not subsiding and just climbing up and up. So you have doctors, you have journalists, you have professors. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it, 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 to, when it was limited to journalists, you could understand, you know, you are purveyor of a narrative when you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. But a doctor and a professor, I mean, why is that important being a journalist there are also protests against your arrest I think these two people people don't even know that they've been arrested yes but the the guy in Bombay the doctor he was released after a day in custody mm. but why do I have to be in custody mm. I mean th- you just can't take these things for granted mm. if I have a view I have the right to express it it sounds very cliche like but it's true and mm. as you said you're a free speech absolutist so am I so even if he said something very incendiary about not Brahmanvad but Hinduism he would have mm. he would have the right but then we go into the murky terrain of IPC section 295A so there's a section it's not even a debate there's a law mm. and it's a colonial relic again so uh, it's rather a hopeless case you have to fight the level uh, the this battle not at just the level of the narrative and argument but on the level of policy making and you know laws which is mm. a far steeper climb I think Tarun do you want to weigh in on this about Uh, people being arrested for sharing their thoughts on social media which might not be in line with what the current regime thinks. Right. Um, I don't know. I have a particularly different uh, view from Ayush. I kind of agree with everything that he said and I'm a free speech kind of absolutist as well so I don't know wow. if I have You're kind of absolutist. It's <laughs> <laughs> not really an absolutist. Um, in the sense that obviously like uh, they're, uh, they're reasonable kind of boundaries for any speech right mm-hmm. like uh, with, when it comes to kind of say uh, inciting violence and, and the law is like you said uh, is uh, there's a colonial hangover uh, in how the law can be interpreted um, and uh, I feel like there's an opportunity for reform there mm. uh, but I think like it, law is as good as the people like who are uh, kind of in place to wheel, yield that instrument mm. um, so I think the that is very important yeah law is as good as the people who are going to implement it yeah <laughs> Um, so we have this saying in Telugu, and now that we've spoken about three-language policy, I'll. So we we have this uh, saying called "kanche chenumeste Ishwar kuda kapalad." What it basically means is, if the fence starts to eat the grass, uh, even the Lord can't save the field. 
so <laughs> so i think like this applies uh, very well to this context i think uh, if those who are in uh, who are duty bound to protect uh, kind of free speech uh, if they kind of waver in their uh, kind of commitment and conviction and interpretation so uh, we have obviously very little hope moving on we're going towards the last topic which is the akshay patra controversy just to give some context over the weekend there was a controversy about midday meals being served in schools in several states by akshay patra which is a non-governmental organization run by scon the debate surfaced after a report came out on the hindu in the article the journalist had stated that several school children in karnataka had complained that they did not like the food that was being served to them because it was bland and the report pointed out that the reason for this was because akshay patra did not serve onion and garlic to the food despite these ingredients featuring on the menu recommended by the state government so first i want ayush to weigh in on this ayush what are your thoughts was this controversy blown out of proportion definitely blown out of proportion yes mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't say that it's it was needless or wasn't mm-hmm. warranted mm-hmm. i think s- some sort of a debate is always should be there if it gets shrill why not but it was overblown because i think the publications editors you know disagreed publicly which was you know made me think like just go to your newsroom and talk it out <laughs> why do you have to do it mm-hmm. and uh, the other thing is that fundamental level i thought uh, the what the point that the hindu got right in its story and even though you know the journal- journalistically you can find uh, loopholes in it is that uh, any institution that has been has a government warrant shouldn't be you know if you have a certain belief that's great mm. but you shouldn't be imposing it on others mm-hmm. now that's the simply a matter of principle when it comes to practicality now is that imposition of principle leading to some sort of a disadvantage i think schools where you serve midday meals and these are children who are disadvantaged it should be very the first thing should be about nutritional value uh, sure. taste mm. i think is rather secondary mm, and as a child i think if i were a teenager or let's say in my early teens i would disagree but let me bring tarun okay. much wisdom <laughs> Hello you are talking about a child the so, only thing they can think about is if the food tastes good when my mother was serving me bindi i would cry yeah but i would I, rather I'm have sure you can see that you had you had some um, currency in terms of your class background that you mm-hmm. could afford to make that yeah, uh, true whatever what should i say pampering <laughs> no but i mean i totally get it when you say that you know i had i was sort of expending my privilege but why take away that choice they can still voice what they like what they dislike but tarun bringing you uh, into the discussion what do you think of the controversy right uh, so was the issue in public interest like definitely yes um, because not just because uh, children are involved but the fact that uh, akshay patra foundation uh, is supported by the government to a tune of almost 40 to 50% percent, uh, of their budgets uh, so it is very much in public interest uh, to know if the terms of the contract uh, are uh, being met uh, having said that i think right now the understanding uh, is around delivering nutritional value uh, to students of course there could be a debate around uh, should our contracts for midday meal uh, given this controversy uh, focus on kind of taste palettes as well uh, and of course akshay patra 
foundation has been known for localizing its palate hmm. uh, having said that are there systems in place to collect feedback from students and incorporate that uh, into uh, kind of uh, their meals on a daily basis so so that is not part of the uh, kind of agreement uh, with the government so technically um, speaking they are not in violation of their agreement they were supposed to deliver a certain nutritional value which you're saying they are delivering as of the current fact stand right yeah. so i mean there's been uh, a couple of back and forths with national institute of nutrition hmm. uh, they agree that their menu does fulfill the nutritional value hmm. uh, that is supposed to be delivered hmm. uh, so having said that like i i think what the activists are saying from what i've read of the articles is that there needs to be sample testing hmm. uh, and uh, not just kind of um, kind of replies given by the foundation so maybe there's merit to that um, hmm. but as of now yeah by given by kind of the facts of nutritional value del- being delivered but to the subjective feeling of taste like should we incorporate like children's palates and mm. taste into it so that's a tricky area right so of course like children would prefer kind of tastier food uh, and like where do you draw the line uh, between tasty food mm. and say like say um, unhealthy and tasty food as well mm. uh, so there needs to be some objective criteria on how you measure taste which is a more expensive uh, um a process it's it's done in the food and beverage industry um but it would Where become there are tasters yeah for tea for example like mm. if you go to beverage companies they have tea tasters who mm. objectively validate the taste of a tea mm. um yeah Ayush, before we started recording the podcast, you were talking about how this controversy also brought in, or rather, was sort of overplayed because of the quote-unquote religiosity element. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's what I tried to say. That when I said I talked about beliefs, mm. I mean, you how they are uh, part of the ISKCON Foundation or the mm. ISKCON Institution, so it is closely connected to the religious bit. And uh, I mean, look, I think everyone has their own attitude on it. I hmm. I am very skeptical of religious beliefs rather finding some sort of an institutionalization when it comes to policy making so I had my doubts there but then I find my consolation in the fact that if there is an, another institution rather secular institution saying that these this food meets the nutrition value then that's fine with me hmm. but uh, it just generally makes me rather uneasy but it's not a full fledged criticism as such okay so that brings us to the close of the podcast i would request both of you to share your recommendations for our listeners ayush do you want to go first <coughs> yeah since we talked about education and um, when you said uh, your scandalized face when you said the <laughs> education's formalized at 3 years of age reminded me of uh, george carlin the american comedian's famous skit on education and parenting it's mm-hmm. one of my favorites so people should watch that it's very funny and very uh, very truthful and second is the story i did on the economist uh, magazine on the censorship it faces in india mm-hmm. because of uh, putting out maps that indian authorities claim mm. are invalid mm. and how the indian authorities censor them and how they found a jugaad to circumvent that problem it's a very interesting story and uh, people should read it yeah yeah and if you want to find out what this jugaad is that ayush is talking about you will have to go to newslaundry.com and check out his story tarun what's your recommendation um i have a show and a book to recommend the show would be brene brown's uh, call to courage mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately it's on netflix so uh, you would have to subscribe and uh, but i think it's a great um, 
uh, one hour kind of talk on vulnerability mm-hmm. shame uh, and how actually courage is equal to vulnerability mm-hmm. um, it's a great talk on um, like how do you kind of uh, make that happen in your daily life mm-hmm. and so she provides a very useful kind of research driven template with a lot mm-hmm. of personal anecdotes um, so I loved it I've been evangelizing it with my team so I definitely recommend that mm-hmm. uh, a book I'd recommend is Factfulness by Hans Rosling uh, he recently passed away but I, you must have we all know him kind of from his famous energetic TED Talks where he really showed how kind of with bubble charts how the world is very different from how we saw it. Uh, and in this book, he argues very forcefully uh, on how we interpret the world is kind of um, biased by uh, how we apply filters to data and mm-hmm. kind of reframes of how you need to kind of uh, collect facts and, and interpret facts in, in the world around you. So very powerful uh, book to kind of shape your mental model of how you read the world. Aish, when Tarun was giving his first recommendation, there was this weird expression on your face. Well, I'm so broke, I can't even <laughs> afford a next <laughs> subscription right now. So I was just you lamenting. Can login, don't worry. Uh-huh. I can share my login. There you go. <laughs> uh, my recommendation for this week is an article in The Caravan. It's headlined, Burning Resentment. It is about the discontentment of cremators of Pashupati Nath. I mean, the way the author has written it, the way he describes it that the cremator is one of the descriptions that really stood out to me was the cremator is using this long staff to you know sort of stoke the fire so that the body burns and this a part of the left leg you know sort of rolls out of the pyre and I was just like (laughs) the description was so vivid that I could imagine myself being there who's the author the author's name is Atul Bhattari Okay. Uh, so definitely recommend you read the piece so that, I mean, just the life of what these people is and can be is something that really stood out to me. So do check out the piece. And um, thank you everyone for listening to us. And listeners, if you listen to this podcast on any other platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, don't forget to head over to our website www.newsonday.com to check out the other cool stuff that we do. Like Aisha's report. Blush, 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 blush. (laughs) Also, if you have any other feedback for us, do write to us. You can email me at cherryatnewslaundry.com or ping me on Twitter or DM Aish on Instagram. No, (laughs) don't. (laughs) Or you can DM me or Gaurav on Instagram. Or you can tweet to Tarun. If you have any questions about the education sector, the policies, you can tweet to him at at the rate Tarun CH. And do remember to pay to keep news free and Azad because it is only then we can send Ayush and Gaurav to the ground to get your reports that might not get as much coverage. Because only if you subscribe, we'll be able to put together amazing, super fantastic podcasts done by young reporters. Uh, you can also tweet to us with hashtag reporters without orders. Happy subscribing. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.